in a world where most Catholics have lost their way and eternal life hangs in the balance. A website arose to face the challenge of our darkest hour. One website with one mission and one desire to restore Catholic tradition, rebuild Catholic culture, and help the faithful prepare for and survive the gathering storm. That website was known only as One Peter Five. But with the forces of darkness and rising expenses gathering on all sides, the cause was destined to falter without your help. Please visit onepeter5.com forward slash donate today and make a tax-deductible contribution. The success of our mission depends on you. Coming soon to a computer near you, this fundraising event is not yet rated. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode 19. Today, we turn our normal paradigm on its head, and I get interviewed by Amanda Erickson of The Washington Post. Stay tuned. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Steve. I will be your host, as always. So I want to give you a little bit of background on today's podcast because it is different. A couple of weeks ago, I was contacted by a journalist from the Washington Post by the name of Amanda Erickson. She had read some of my commentary online and wanted to talk to me about the impending papal visit to the United States, specifically here in the Washington, D.C. area, where he'll be stopping um, really in just a few days. And I agreed to the interview because I thought it might be an interesting time to sort of have this conversation and, and update my thoughts on, on the papacy and on what's going on. And I anticipated, honestly, mostly talking about what Pope Francis's agenda will be here in the U.S., what he'll talk about, what he's going to do. And so I did my, my interview prep for those questions, but those questions never really came. Instead, Amanda asked me a lot more broad questions, contextual questions about the papacy, about the legacy of Pope Francis, about what it is about him that's causing so many Catholics to be concerned. And I obviously have a lot to say on that, so I talked somewhat extensively about it. With her permission, I had recorded the interview for my reference, and so again, I reached out to her today after the article was published and asked if it would be okay if I released the audio of our conversation as a podcast. So it's not going to follow exactly the usual format because originally this was not intended for broadcast, Um, but having listened to it again today, I think... It serves to further the conversation, and while I talk entirely too much, as you'll hear me apologize for at one point in the podcast, I think that this is a conversation that we should all be having. These are questions that we need to ask, and so I present this for your consideration, um, and I hope that you enjoy uh, hearing me interviewed for a change. Um, So maybe to start, could you just tell me a little bit about... um you know, what your impression of Pope Francis was when he was first um, first named? 
That's an interesting question. Um, there is sort of a strange common thread that exists uh, among a number of Catholics from different backgrounds who, uh, when they first encountered Pope Francis when he came out on, on the loggia and was announced, um, where we had never heard of him before, um, never heard his name, didn't really have a familiarity with him. It's commonly the case, even with people who pay a lot of attention to church news, that you know the big power players in the Vatican are in certain dicasteries or around the world. Um, but I had no idea. I'd never seen him before, never heard his name. But something about him filled me with a very strong feeling of apprehension. And I couldn't really place it. And later on, I, I found a number of other people uh, online who were talking about the same thing, that they were excited and they were wondering who it was going to be. And they, they had that same sense without having any idea of who he was. So it was a visceral thing and it was a gut thing. And I don't really know how to explain it. Uh, some people tend to look at those sort of intuitions dismissively. Um, but there was a sense in which uh, I, I, I felt a discontinuity, a disruption uh, in his persona and in the way he carried himself. And it made me very nervous. And I kind of waited before I said anything about it. Um, but there was definitely a sense that this guy could be trouble. <laughs> and, he, and he turned out to be as disruptive as I probably could have imagined. Was there, was there a thing, you know, a, a moment where he said something or where something sort of that, that sort of and you said, okay, this is why I'm, this is why this feeling existed. Yeah, you know, it actually started for me, um, uh, I guess it was probably six months maybe. I think it was around October of 2013 um, when I really started saying I need to say something about this. And it were little things that he said. You know, he did that, that interview that um, was in America Magazine, a big heart open to God. And he did a couple of other ones at the same time. Uh, and he said things like, uh, one of his quotes was, the most serious of the evils that afflict the world these days are youth unemployment and the loneliness of the old. Um, and to a Catholic, especially to an Orthodox practicing Catholic who is sort of tuned into the big issues that are facing the church, that's a jarring statement. Um, it's a jarring statement, especially in conjunction with his statements about uh, that we spend too much time focusing on things like abortion and gay marriage and you know euthanasia and these other things and that you know they come across as a I, the, the phrase he used is a disjointed multitude of doctrines uh, that, that lack context but you know, when you are on the front lines of sort of the culture wars as a Catholic and and you're looking at the for example the death toll of abortion which in the United States is over 55 million and it's estimated that around the world it's over a billion since 1980 to me, that's a humanitarian crisis of unprecedented proportions. Um, within the church, doctrinally speaking, we have a very, very small number of Catholics who self-identify as Catholics who actually practice the faith, um, you know, accept the church's teachings, especially on, you know, critical issues. If faith is about salvation and if, as Catholics believe, you have to stay in a state of grace and avoid sin in order to attain salvation, then if you're not living in such a way that that happens, that's a fundamental breakdown of, of your faith. And so when estimates come in again and again and again that over 90% of Catholics are using uh, artificial birth control, and when 
you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, New York Times did a, a survey of younger people. I think it was age 18 to 45 in the 1990s. Seventy percent of them said they don't believe that Christ is present, really present in the Eucharist. Um, those kinds of indicators, the number of people who don't go to mass or, you know, who support gay marriage or all these kinds of things that are just really fundamental, basic. We know these are the teachings of the church. You don't have to like them. You don't have to be Catholic. But if you are, this is what we believe. And and so it's, it's as the, if that we're in this place where the faith is almost completely decimated and the things that he's focusing on sound more like a social program, like the kind of thing that, you know, um, it's all about the poor and about the peripheries and the marginalized. And, and it's like this dropping away uh, of, of focus on the things that Catholics have for at least 50 years felt like these are the things we really need to shore up before we can do anything else. We need to get our own house in order. Um, and there are a couple of other quotes. I mean, you know, he, he kept going back to Eugenio Scalfari. Um, who is the atheist editor of, I forget which one of the Italian publications it is. Um, I don't know if it's La Repubblica. I can't remember which one uh, he does. Um, but this is a guy who's you know, in his 80s, and he, by his own admission, takes no notes when he's interviewing people and then recalls from memory and reconstructs the interviews according to his sense of what they are. Now, you're a journalist. That's, that's not good journalism. But the Pope has interviewed with him, even after the first one was very controversial, I think three additional times. And every single time, some major controversial statement has come out of those interviews. And in every case, the Vatican has refused to dispute that it was what the Pope said. In fact, Father Lombardi, who's the communications director for the Vatican, will frequently say, well, I mean, the general sense is correct. And if the Pope you know, disagreed with the way that it was represented, he would correct it. But it's statements like the one I already mentioned to you are, you know, the one that said everyone has his own idea of good and evil and must choose to follow the good and fight evil as he conceives them. That would be enough to make the world a better place. Now, superimpose a quote like that on ISIS and on Islamic extremism throughout the Middle East, and it's a really problematic statement. Yes, people have their own ideas of good and evil, but the thing that they do in the name of, of that concept is not always a good thing, and it certainly doesn't make the world a better place. You know, so it's things like that, things like proselytism is solemn nonsense. When the Great Commission, Christ sent the apostles out to make disciples of all nations, and traditionally speaking, proselytism and evangelization were more or less considered the same thing. It was go out and try to convert people, convince them that what you believe in is true. And so there were a lot of those little statements that kind of made their way in. And later on, there were more theological ones that were more subtle. But I mean, those were the initial ones that really kind of started making me take a step back and say, okay, there's some substance to the intuition. And what do you think about, um, you know, first, I, my sense of the Pope is that, you know, within the Catholic Church, uh, there's a lot of he's kind of, I would say, maybe controversial. Mm -hmm. um, but outside the church, he's very popular. Yes. And, like, what do you make of sort of that dynamic? As a, you know, do you think that's, that's uh, helpful to Catholics, or do you think it's difficult for Catholics? Well, I mean, I would say that, as a Catholic, it's always good news when something generates positive interest in the Catholic Church. But the presumption is that it's generating positive interest in what we actually believe, 
Um, and so in the particulars of any of these situations is where we run into challenges. So my impression of that is that what's happening is people are thinking, they are coming onto the, under the impression that Pope Francis is changing the teachings of the church. He's updating the church. He's getting with the times, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's moving things in a direction where he's accepting of everyone. He's talking about sin less. He's not worried about abortion. I mean, one of the big, big signals that came out is when uh, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, came out and they actually, they did an ad. Uh, I don't know if it was just an online ad, but it literally just said, Dear Pope Francis, thank you, signed Pro-Choice Women Everywhere with their logo at the bottom. Big orange ad. And for a pope to be able to be co-opted as as a standard bearer for the most pro-abortion group in the United States, there's a disconnect there between, you know, the appeal that he has to people and people coming to the church because they want what it has to offer. I think what they're doing is they're coming to the church not because they want what it has to offer, but because the, they think that the church is finally affirming them in what they believe. Does that make sense? It's false advertising. I mean, if you want to put it simply, I tend to go on too long, but if you want to put it simply, it's false advertising. He is giving the impression that he's changing teachings that cannot be changed. And when people get excited and say, even in the media, people like Elton John, you know, that this guy's great because look what he's changing. There's never a word of correction to say, actually, that's not what I meant. And you know, I'm glad you're interested, but this is what we actually believe there's that disconnect between, hey, I'm just going to let the impression hang out there. And it bothers me even more because I know that there is an updated communications apparatus in the Vatican. They hired a former Fox News journalist to be their PR executive. Uh, they have hired a couple of U.S. firms to overhaul things from the Vatican Bank to their, their entire communications structure. And I used to work in a PR office here in Arlington. And I know how it works. You read the news every day and you monitor every story and you look to see how your client's story is being portrayed. And if it's being portrayed in the way that you like, you try to find ways to get more of the same. If somebody's saying something you like, you try to get them you know, more coverage. And if somebody's saying something you don't, you find a way to refute it. So either the PR staff that they've brought on board is incompetent or the message that they're sending is exactly the one that they want. I don't see any kind of middle road between the two. What in your mind are the biggest problems with sort of Pope Francis's approach or with his, his philosophy? Um, I don't know if I understand your question. Like if you, if you had to sort of identify two or three of, of the top things that you're concerned about with Pope Francis, the top issues. Um... Let's see. I want to pinpoint it because I, I find that he's a little bit difficult to follow because he's kind of all over the place. Um, there is this sort of... I would say the biggest thing goes back to what we talked about a minute ago with the appeal. There is the impression that what he is creating is a divorce between doctrine and pastoral practice. That the rules on the books can stay the same. But if we change the practice, that's not a problem. 
even if the practice fundamentally alters human behavior in a way that would affect their salvation, their, you know, the, out, the eternal outcome of, of their actions, the consequences. And so there's this sort of, I think that that's the top issue, is this separation of, I can say whatever I want, and I can lead people to believe that I mean it, but I will always be defended as someone who actually holds what the church teaches. I'm a faithful son of the church, he says. And you can go back and you can find a number of statements that he will make that reaffirm church teaching. So they're on the books and you can look them up and you can find them and people will say to you if you complain, you know, he's doing this and they'll say, well, no, look, he said this and this is this is what the church has always said. But it's as if he's saying one thing one day and another thing the next. And what ends up happening, the impression that's given to people is the Pope has given me permission to change the way I live. And these are people who, you know, they're not looking at the catechism. The average person in the pew or the person who identifies as Catholic and never darkens the door of a, of a church, they are not reading the catechism. They're not reading Denziger's sources of Catholic dogma. They don't have theology degrees. They're not reading even a lot of the blogs. They're not you know, doing any of that stuff. And so what I think happens is the impression that they get becomes gospel to them. Um, and so then this filters down into a number of his actions. He will do things and say things that are manifestly different than what the church has ever done or believed before. Um, but because it's just something that he's doing off the, you know, off the cuff are three words that you will see in reference to him more than just about anything else. Oh, he spoke off the cuff. He was making remarks off the cuff. The interviews on the planes coming back from places. And he, and then there's the, the secondary layer of the reports that come in from people who know him or whom he's interacted with. The woman in Argentina who said that he called her and told her that even though she's in a divorced and remarried situation, she can continue to receive communion without an annulment. Um, there are a number of, of Protestant uh, pastors uh, and individuals who have said that he told them that they don't need to convert. They don't need to become Catholic. He needs them to stay where they are. Uh, Rabbi Skorka, I believe is his name, was a Jewish friend of his in Buenos Aires who, again, said the same thing. He doesn't look to convert us. We're not interested in that. So there's this movement away, and these people will say this stuff in the media, right? Um, you, know, you have the transsexual that met with them last Christmas. It's all over the place. It's just you're being peppered constantly with stories of people who are saying, you know, he gave me his approval for this. He told me I don't have to do this. It doesn't matter if I actually come into the church building. I'm still part of the church. And then that's reported in the media. And the impression that's given is, look what he's changed. These were the rules. You had to do this. It was a precept of the church. And now it's not. And then there's nothing. There's just silence. Um, and that's the, the difficult thing for those of us who are in a position uh, to uphold the faith whether it's the professors in Catholic universities who I talk to who are beside themselves trying to figure out how to tell their students, you know, that what he's doing is problematic, or it's the, the pastor, you know, at the local church who says, I have people coming up to me who are living in adulterous relationships telling me they can receive communion because the Pope said it's okay. Um, I've heard from all these kinds of people, and they don't, they're left with not much to fall back on other than this is what the church always taught, guys, and we can't change it. And they say, well, Pope Francis already did. 
Um, so that's the biggest problem. And, and really, it just it filters down into all the little actions, the little theological deviations that come out in his homilies and things like that. Things like saying, you know, that certain of Christ's miracles are not actual miracles. The loaves and the fishes is one of his big ones that he talks about it being, you know, not a, not a miracle of multiplication, but of sharing. These were the little theological distinctions that in the previous, you know, eras of the church would be debated at councils and would get people called heretics and all this kind of stuff. And now they come out and they just sort of fly under the radar and people say, oh, it's a translation problem. Oh, it's a, you know, it's this and that. So I guess what I would say then if, if I needed to encapsulate that, and I apologize for not being a very succinct verbal thinker, but he's sowing confusion about what we believe. And when he is made aware of that confusion, he's doing nothing to set it right. Interesting. A lot of uh, the Catholics that I've talked to, um, I think they articulate this, this this confusion that you're talking about. Um, but I think that there's some some reluctance to to criticize Pope Francis, and I I wonder. I mean, do you feel like because he's a pope? Because he's our pope, do you, you know, do you find that other, you know, other Catholics have these concerns? Do you have sort of trouble talking about them with? Others? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've in fact been accused of scandalizing people and leading them into sin and all this stuff. But see, what's interesting for me is, um, so I'm 37 and I grew up in the post-conciliar church, and I grew up with the new mass and all that stuff. And over a period of time, I discovered. Um, more traditional components of the church's teaching and liturgy and you know the older people encyclicals and and all this kind of stuff so i go to the traditional latin mass um which you know for a while would register you on most catholic scale as a schismatic or a cuckoo you know and and i actually had friends ask me you know when they when they found out that i went to the traditional latin mass they said so you're, you're schismatic and i was like no I, I go to the parish you know this parish it's it's a completely legitimate right of the church, it's just been kind of forgotten and pushed aside. Um, and, and so through my discovery of those things, something that I learned and something that all so-called traditionalist Catholics learn is that popes make mistakes. Um, they've been making them in rather <laughs> profound abundance since the 1960s. Um, and, and you can see a correlation. I, I wouldn't chalk it up to causation, but you can certainly see a correlation between the liturgical changes, the sacramental changes, the doctrinal uh, updates that come very close to being contradictions uh, that happened at the time of the Second Vatican Council, directly afterward when the Concilium implemented the new liturgy, uh, and then and sort of the succeeding period where everything traditional was suppressed. The data is there. Not only did tens of thousands of Catholics leave the church, not just laity, but priests and religious, um, you know, the number of annulments skyrocketed, the number of applications for laicization by priests skyrocketed, and that's when you started seeing, uh, there was a book that came out in the late 90s, I think it was called the, the the Catholic Index of, or no, the Index of Leading Catholic Indicators, I think is what it was called, and it was just a number of statistics that showed the last hundred years, if I'm not mistaken, where there was an increase in vocations and in people going to mass and in all this stuff, the church was growing and flourishing. And then the 1960s comes and everything begins this downward slide from mass attendance to everything we've already discussed. So there's this sense of correlation. This happened and so people say, well, how did it happen? And 
the answer that most traditionalists wind up at is, well, the popes allowed this to happen, whether they did it directly, whether it was done through ambiguities, and not, not calling them heretics, but saying that you can do a lot to change the way people believe, first of all, just by changing the way they pray. Change the mass, you will change their belief. You know, uh, there's a German author, Martin Mosbach, who wrote a great book called The Heresy of Formlessness. And he talks about how when people are kneeling to receive communion for over a thousand years, and then suddenly overnight, they're told to stand up and receive it in their hand. What it what that tells them anthropologically, psychologically, is that this thing that they thought was sacred and, import, and important is actually not that important after all. It can just be thrown out. Um, and so there's this essence where there was an assault on the way Catholics prayed and believed, and that happened under the watch of several popes. Um, and so for people like me, we're a little used to looking at popes and saying, hey, there's good popes and there's bad popes. Um, and, you know, and even within a papacy, there can be degrees. Like John Paul II was amazing about sexual morality, but he was awful about liturgy. Um, you know, Benedict was the strongest pope we've had in recent times. Paul VI did a great thing with Humanae Vitae, but what he did with the council was not so great. What he did with the new mass was not so great. What he did with communion in the hand was not so great. And Humanae Vitae, for all of the strength and the surprise you know, that he reaffirmed church teaching on birth control, it was never enforced. And in fact, the Pontifical Commission on Birth Control was given an entire year to go out in the media and tell them the church is going to change their teaching on birth control. So by the time Humanae Vitae was issued, it was a fait accompli. It was done. People were already contracepting. Their parish priests were telling them it was fine. And that's why you get the numbers now. And I don't know if you ever looked much at the synod last year. Um, but the synod that happened in October last year, there was a, a survey that went out to parishes ahead of time. And, and we're talking, again, 80, 90% of respondents saying things like, yeah, contraception's fine, abortion's fine, you know, whatever. So there's that sense where there's a correlation between those two things. So that's, I guess, my first part of my answer to your question about papal criticism. The other thing is, is that the first Vatican Council defined dogmatically papal infallibility. And what that wound up doing, I think, was create this sense that, um, that everything that a pope does is infallible. Everything that a pope does is somehow protected by this charism of the Holy Spirit. And nothing could be further from the truth. And blessed John Cardinal Henry Newman, uh, you know, late 19th century convert from Anglicanism, very, very famous writer um, and, and hopefully soon to be saint. You know, he wrote to his bishop at the time and he said, I'm really worried about this because if we, you know, we believe in papal infallibility, but it's a limited charism and all this. But if we define it at a council, what's going to end up happening is if the pope says you have to dress a certain way or you're not allowed to participate in lotteries or any of this other stuff, people are going to think they have to do that. And that's not technically true. And so one of my friends coined the term papal positivism. It's this idea that whatever the pope says is true. And it doesn't matter if he contradicted somebody before. It doesn't matter if it seems like it's totally incongruous with the past. The Pope now is sort of the ultimate supreme authority in the church, and what he says goes. And that is something that a lot of Catholics clung to, especially in the tumult that followed the Second Vatican Council. Um, because the Popes tended to be more orthodox than the bishops around them. But when you get a progressive, you know, liberation theology-influenced Latin American Jesuit, 
there is nothing safeguarding that. I mean, he's not the ship to cling to in the storm. Then you want to look back to the church's teaching and say, okay, the Pope's job is to safeguard the deposit of faith. It's it's to protect doctrine, to explain it if necessary, but never to innovate in it. And people have lost their connection to their understanding of, of what the Pope's job is and when he's infallible. And I think a perfect example would be something like economics, which this Pope has kind of famously been involved in talking about. But, you know, he could decry the immorality of greed, like Leo XIII did in Rerum Navarum, you know, talking about the social teachings of the church. He could he could decry the hoarding of wealth as a violation of the seventh and maybe even the fifth and the tenth commandments. And he could even talk about how it's immoral for a man to be paid less than he's worth, which traditionally was one of the sins that cried out to heaven for vengeance. But the Pope can't say that a certain economic system is the best to ensure human dignity. When he starts stepping outside of his purview of faith and morals being the thing that he can declare infallibly on, it's too much. It's prescriptive. And so he can only hold account to you know the individual actions. So there's moral actors in an economic system. You have to pay people fairly. You have to you know feed the poor. If you have excess, you have to tithe, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But he can't say capitalism is best or socialism is best or whatever. He, there are limits on that charism. And I think that that's the other thing that people don't understand. And so now what we have is this sort of Catholic illiteracy and ignorancy, not just in the church, but in the wider world. And so if the Pope gets on a plane coming back from the Philippines and says something to a journalist, or if he says, who am I to judge? It's like the shot that rings around the world and everybody thinks, hey, look what he just did. He just changed everything. And he didn't. But as long as people believe it, the upshot's the same. Do you, yeah, I mean, I think it does kind of feel like when the Pope speaks, and he's so well covered, I feel like, this particular Pope, that when he talks... Uh, Everyone sort of everyone hears everything, you know. Even if it's kind of an off the cuff thing, it comes mm -hmm. as, as sort of a thing from the Pope. Do you feel like this Pope is is more worrisome than the other other Pope you talked about, who were sort of good on some things, bad on some things? Yes. And do, I mean, do you feel like there? Do, do you feel like there's a way to sort of you know push against that? At, you know, as as a Catholic. Well, I mean. The thing that many of of my friends and I have have decided to do is to simply try to balance the things that are being said with the things that we know the church teaches that seem to oppose. Because as a layman, you don't have the authority to, you know, contradict a pope per se, but you could say well, it's weird that he said this because, you know, in such and such a council or in such and such an encyclical, the church said this. And you can you can point back to where the thing that he is saying is is deviating from what has traditionally always been understood as the teaching of the church. That's one of the ways that you do it. Another way that you do it is is not to address it at all, but simply to talk about the the opposite virtue, as it were. So let's imagine hypothetically, and I'm not saying that he's really done this particularly, um, but let's say you know he was trashing using Latin in the liturgy. Say he thought it was a terrible idea. You, you could go back and you could say, well, hey, you know, Pope John 
the 23rd, who invoked the Second Vatican Council that everybody thinks got rid of Latin in the liturgy, actually wrote an apostolic constitution, which is the highest form of, of papal document, short of a, a council or, or an infallible decree. Uh, it carries the most authoritative weight, and it was called Veterum Sapientia, and in it he talked about how Latin was so important as the universal language of the church, because it's a dead language, so it's only the church's language. It's not subject to change, just like the church's teachings aren't subject to change. It gives rise to no preferences among nations, because no nation uses the language, and so all may be unified by it. Uh, it's what the deposit of faith is in, so theologians and priests can read the texts that have been written for 2,000 years in Latin and understand the mind of the church. And when they come together in councils, they can communicate in it that, that liturgy should be done this way, that sacred ministers are required to use it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you could just write an article about how, hey, check this out. The, Pope John Twenty-Third said all this stuff. And then when people encounter the two things, they're able to draw their own conclusions. And one of the things that I firmly believe in, people, as Catholics, faithful, good Catholics, have a knee-jerk negative reaction to hearing someone criticize the Pope, which has been the experience that I've had most of my life. I never liked it when people were critical of the Pope because I'm like, hey, he's my guy. You know, he's, he's the, the Holy Father. He's the guy you don't mess with. But... There comes a time where that's necessary, and I'll, I, I'll pull up a quote in a minute that I can tell you about that I think is really expressive of this. Um, you know, whether or not, I doubt you would want to even use it, but I think it's a good frame of reference for the discussion about, you know, what we owe to a pope in terms of criticizing and not criticizing him. And um, uh, the knee-jerk reaction that people have is legitimate, but there does come a point where, I mean, Christ rebuked Peter to the face. And he did so because he was denying an essential truth of the faith. When Christ said, I have to go and do this thing where I have to you know, be crucified, it was Peter saying, no, surely, Lord, you don't need to do this. You don't. And he turns to him and he says, get behind me, Satan, because the things you care about are of man, not of God. So Peter has this experience with Christ. Then Peter denies Christ three times. Then Peter gets rebuked in Galatians by Paul because he's messing up the disciplinary uh, stuff that he's supposed to be doing with the Jews and the Gentiles, and he can't figure it out, and he's talking about dietary restrictions, and Paul rebukes him to the face, even though by then he's the Pope. So there's this sort of scriptural precedent where we understand, yes, Peter can be fallible. In fact, you could argue that other than Judas, Peter was the most fallible of all the apostles, which is why it's so fascinating that he was the one who was chosen to lead, and that it's possible in good conscience to criticize uh, the Pope. And I've written way too many words on this. There's an essay I wrote, it's about 4,000 words long, called Can Catholics Criticize the Pope? And I go into sort of the theological and historical uh, background of that, including St. Thomas Aquinas. And I apologize to you. I really do say too much, so you can interrupt me at any point because I go on too long. No, I think I mean, this is all. This is all. I think really very interesting. You'll um, just have to sift through it later to find like the, you know, the fifteen words that you're actually going to use for me. <laughs> uh, what do you What do you imagine the sort of long term uh, impact will be on the church? Hmm. Well, that's a really. It's a really difficult thing to predict. 
Um, I think that he has done a couple of things that will be long-lasting. One is that he has dealt a very profound blow to this idea of papal positivism, to the idea that papal infallibility means that whatever a pope does or says is gospel. He has woken up a lot of people who would never have considered the possibility that a pope could be doing troubling things to realize, hey, popes make mistakes too. And part of this is a feature of we've had a lot of good popes for a long time. Um, you know, so even the ones that were not so great after the Second Vatican Council were still, I mean, seen as very holy, um, seen as, you know, in Benedict's case, a very profound theologian, etc. So people had kind of become accustomed to saying the Pope's a good guy and I don't have to worry about him. They don't really necessarily think back to the history of the papacy and the bad popes, the popes who tortured people and raped people and killed people and were still valid popes, but were horrible human beings. They weren't doing these things, you know, they weren't saying you could go do it. It wasn't a violation of their preservation of faith and morals, but in their personal conduct, they were horrible, horrible sinners. Um, and it's not just the Borgias, you know, there was a number, John John the Twelfth and, and Pope Urban the Sixth, and there were a number of them that were just really, really bad guys. Um, and so those were bad guys in their personal conduct. What Pope Francis has done is reminded us that a pope can make mistakes in his personal understandings of theological principles or in his application of doctrine as pastoral practice. Um, he hasn't changed doctrine, and I have to say that and, and reiterate it. He can't. He's unable to change doctrine. But he has managed to give the impression that it's happening and that has woken up a lot of people. And you're going to see Catholics who are, you know, in that small subset of faithful Orthodox Catholics, so-called, who are going to be much more willing to be critical of papacies from this point forward. Um, and that's going to make them review a lot of things that happened after the council. Not just what's happening now, but they're going to say, well, if they could be wrong about this, what if all these other things that, you know, people have been complaining about since then are also a problem? You know, can these things happen? Can they not? Et cetera. So they, they're going to begin questioning more. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I actually think it's a positive. We believe that faith and reason work together. They don't contradict each other. And so... I like to see Catholics with critical thought. I want them to ask questions. I want them to say, not just that I believe this, but why do I believe it? Where does this come from? Why do we have this? Um, and so I, I hope that he encourages that. And we kind of jokingly sometimes refer to him as Pope smelling salts. He's just waking people up left and right to, hey, this is going on. Um, I think that the, the other component, though, that I would say is long-lasting um, and I'm going to separate this into two pieces. One is going to be just in general. Um, priests, theologians, canonists are going to, for a very long time to come, possibly decades, be dealing with the fallout of the things that he has said that appear to be theological deviations that have led to misconceptions. They are going to be forced to re-catechize the faithful in new ways. And they're going to have to find ways to substantiate their positions because they're going to appear to be opposing a pope. And they're going to have to say, well, here's the reasons why, here's the basis for it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Uh, and there's some historical precedent. Honorius I was anathematized by a council because he kind of held to a heresy that he didn't realize was a heresy because it hadn't been defined yet. John the Twenty Second tried to force his certain theological errors that he had. He was preaching homilies, personal homilies that aren't magisterial, but but there was some heretical things he was saying, and the university uh, theologians at the University of Sorbonne in Paris kind of started getting into a battle with him, and he tried to impose it, and then King Philip said, you can't impose it, and there was this big thing that went on. These guys are valid popes, but they made theological mistakes. So this can happen, and theologians can build that case from history, saying, hey, it's not violating anything that we believe about the papal office and its character, but this needs to be fixed. I think the biggest and most long-lasting thing that's going to happen, though, um, is if this synod, this second half of the synod in October, follows the course of the one last October, there is a very strong likelihood of some unacceptable compromise on admitting those who are living in, in a state that violates the Sixth Commandment uh, to receive without repentance to receive the Holy Eucharist. And that is going to be profound. Now, I don't think that he's necessarily and actually not likely going to make any direct statement about, hey, the divorced and remarried or homosexuals who are actively living in homosexual relationships can receive communion. However, there are forces at the synod which are pushing for those positions. They are not being disciplined. They are not being reined in. And they are being allowed a free hand um, to push that agenda. And so if, let's say, and this is still speculative, but if, let's say that he delegates the authority to make decisions on whether a couple that was married in the church, one of them divorces, remarries someone else, whether their original marriage was valid. He delegates that to either the individual bishop or the local bishop's conference or or gives them the power to delegate that uh, decision to to their parish priest or to themselves. Sort of like um, you know, NFP, for example. You know, you can decide for yourself whether or not you know you can avoid having children naturally for various reasons, etc. It's a theological principle there. I'm in the weeds, but let's say he delegates this to a really low authority. So now what you have are people, like I've already described it, is happening. I have heard from priests. In fact, Father Dwight Longnecker, who's a very well-known Anglican convert, Catholic priest now, and blogs um, very well known. He has had people present themselves to him for communion who they know they are in second marriages that are not valid in the eyes of the church, but they believe the Pope has changed uh, this teaching. That is going to create a tension within the church that could actually lead to a schism. You could actually see the faithful bishops, the ones who say this is something we cannot compromise on, go in one direction. Uh, you could see a large chunk of the church go in the other direction. You could see Germany break off because they're the biggest, um, they're the wealthiest portion of the church, and they're the ones pushing for this the hardest. Um, and since they have their own resources because of the church tax in Germany, which is its whole other kettle of fish that needs to be dealt with, um, they have a lot, millions and millions of dollars at their disposal, and they can they can push their weight around because they've got the money and the resources that people need. And they are pretty much openly advocating for heresy. So there is this anticipated dread that a lot of people have looking at the synod that's coming. And if you're interested in this topic outside the scope of this interview, uh, there's a journalist, British journalist by the name of Edward Penton, P-E-N-T-I-N, who 
uh, just released a book called The Rigging of a Vatican Synod, and it's an investigative report on what happened at the Synod last year, the manipulation, the intimidation, the theft of the books that were sent to these cardinals that were participating in the Synod so that they could, you know, know, sort of have an easy compendium of what the church's traditional teaching was on this stuff. There was a lot of dirty pool going on at that Synod. And according to the Secretary General of the Synod, Pope Francis knew what was going on and was overseeing everything. So there's this sense in which he's not got his hands dirty himself, but he's letting his hand-selected people do that. And so the biggest potential outcome that I see is a potential split within the church itself between the people who want to hold to the traditional teaching and the ones who believe that sort of mercy trumps all. And do you think that's something that could divide the American church? That could what? That could divide the American church. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, The American church is obsessed with certain issues. Um, And it deals with, frankly, I mean, you know, divorce is just as bad here as anywhere. Um, So clearly that could divide the American church. Uh, The American bishops are really, I mean, if you want to talk about being obsessed with an issue, they're obsessed with immigration. Um, They're obsessed with certain things that don't really pertain to their primary jobs as shepherds of souls. Um, They get too much into political and social issues, and they don't do enough with the theological issues that need to be shored up. So I absolutely believe that that could lead to serious problems here. And it could lead to problems, frankly, Amanda, on the parish level. You know, I have some friends who've been asking priests, if you're told that you have to give communion to people who you know are living in adulterous relationships, who are living in homosexual relationships, will you do it if your bishop tells you under obedience you have to do it? And, you know, maybe that won't, that scenario won't come to pass, but if it does, it's almost, well, it's almost impossible to fathom how we can get to that point. I mean, you go back to Arianism in the fourth century, where over 80% of the bishops were in heresy, didn't believe Christ was the Son of God, just believed he was a man. And they had pushed all the true Christians out of the churches. St. Athanasius resisted and was excommunicated for it. St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote about you know, the poor people that were worshiping out in the desert and under the harsh conditions of weather and all this stuff because they weren't even allowed to go into their own churches because the heretics had kicked them out. And I'm aware of certain priests in this area who I will not name, very well-known and well-respected, who have said to their congregations, in the very near future, we may no longer be allowed to use this church. We may be stuck worshiping almost like in the catacombs again. Do you, um, I mean, does your sense that, like, like, what, of the sort of people that are, that are attending church, you know, what percentage of them do you think sort of feel the same way you do? Do you have any sense of that? I think that it's a growing percentage, but I would still say I am I am in the minority. Um, and if I had to look at a split in the church, I would think that you're looking at a really small, I mean, 20% would be optimistic. 10% is more likely. I, I think that you go back to those same dividing lines that you see when people are polled on contraception. If you are saying that as a as a Catholic couple, I am admitting to you in a poll that I am engaged in an action within my marriage that the church defines as intrinsically disordered and gravely sinful and could and if goes unrepented will lead me to go to hell. And I'm telling you in a survey, yes, I do it and I think it's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
put put the stakes on that. You know, what public opinion is one thing, and obviously the general society thinks contraception is totally normal. But we're Catholics, and we've been around for a couple thousand years, and we don't believe that. And you you can disagree with us, but I would ask that people would respect us, and I imagine you feel the same way. Respect the belief that we have. And if you don't want to honor it, then maybe you need to find somewhere else to worship. There's a lot of other options out there. Um, so if if that's a 90% number, you know, which is what Guttmacher reports, which is what some of these synod surveys report, well, then there you go. 90% of Catholics don't care enough about that. So they're not going to care about this other stuff, most likely, not unless it affects them directly in some way. Um, and so I would, I would definitely say 10, 15% of Catholics in general might feel this way. If you were to go to a parish that has the traditional Latin mass and the people are making the choice to go to that mass because they've studied the church's history and liturgy and doctrine more deeply because very few people stumble into that. It's sort of a, an archeological dig. You have to find your way there. Those people tend, in general, to be more tuned into these issues and more educated. The number jumps up to 80-90%. Those are the people who care about it. And and then I, what I don't know, is I haven't interacted with them enough, are the people in the Eastern Rites, the Byzantine Church, the Ukrainian Church, the Melkites. I mean, and we have representations of all of those Eastern Rites here in the D.C. metropolitan area and around the country. So I don't know how... They would be affected, but I would presume that most of them are going to fall on the more orthodox side, more closer to my position, uh, just because those rites have preserved a lot more of their antiquity. The rest of my conversation with Amanda revolved around the Latin Mass and where it's available in the D.C. metro area and got into more personal and, and small talk. But there was something that she said at the end uh, that I wanted to share with you. Uh, where I, I mentioned to her um, that I was sorry that I had gone on so much longer than she probably needed. And her response was this. I think that um, you're giving voice to a lot, to you know, concerns that I've heard a lot in reporting this piece. In case you couldn't make that out because her audio was a little bit off, she said that she thinks that I'm giving voice to a lot of the concerns that she's been hearing while reporting on this piece. She was finding that this was a sort of similar reaction when she was talking to people. People are worried about the same things. So I think that one of the things that's really interesting, uh, looking at the questions that were asked and discussed here, a couple of years ago, when I started talking about these concerns, I was pretty much alone. And a lot of people have come around to the same side. A lot of people are expressing the same concerns and they're doing so more openly. And I see that as a positive sign because our fidelity is first to the church, first to the deposit of faith, over and above the, the individual person of any particular pope. We owe him our obedience and loyalty in matters that are pertinent to his authority. Um, but we owe our loyalty to the church first, to the church's teachings first. And so our concerns, if valid and charitably phrased, should be expressed in a public forum. And that's what we do here. But it's not the only thing we do. We also focus on the faith, whole and entire. The traditions, the devotions, the practices that made Catholicism great. And that's what we're going to continue to do. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel we've provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.